0: This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Fantinar.
1: Welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast episode. And today I've got a really interesting guest with me. I've got Graham Brown, who's the owner of the Pickle Podcasting Agency, and he is also an author of of a number of books. And he's got an interesting topic which I have not had a chance yet to really delve into, which is AI. Now, the reason why I'm very excited to have Graham on is there's a couple of other areas which is written about on his blog, which I find incredibly fascinating, which is storytelling. And I wanted to find out why, Graham, you focused on AI and storytelling, what's the connection and why the fascination with AI when you are a podcast agency creator, and also why you generated with over 1000 episodes of podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. So Can you give people a bit of an introduction about, one, your background, what you do, and who you are, and then we'll dive into the whole AI discussion?
0: Sure. Well, thanks, Lance. It's great to be here. I don't carry any business cards, but if I was to, it would say storyteller on it, because that's what I do. And effectively, that's what I get paid to do by agency clients who want us to create podcasts for them. It's not Mm -hmm. how I started out in my studies I studied AI back in, well, I graduated in 95, 1995, in AI, <laughs> last century.
1: <laughs> yeah, know the feeling.
0: Yeah. And I was very convinced at the time that AI was a thing, but nobody really saw what I saw. And it was mm-hmm. too too early. the The computational power wasn't there. You know, it was more philosophical, even though it was all modeled intelligence on computers. Because we didn't have the libraries and the power that we do now, a lot of it was about what is AI, what is intelligence, what is consciousness, and so that's how I started out. But I didn't manage to land myself a job in AI at the time. I had a choice of either teaching AI again, which would have been you know full circle in that career path, or go to MIT, and you know that wasn't an open option for me. It was too expensive. So I took the path, I was given an opportunity to teach English in Japan, which is what everybody was doing back then. So I went to Mm -hmm. Japan and really that started me out in my career as a storyteller, presenting, communicating, engaging. And really, they don't seem to make sense. Why AI and why storytelling? And it's taken 25 years to close that loop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the factors is, is what's happening in the world today is that Increasingly, our world is being driven by machine learning, even to the Mm. point where, you know, if you order a a coffee from Starbucks on some delivery app, it's computed by machine learning. That's AI Mm. at work, or what you search for is somehow shaped by AI in the most basic Mm. forms. Because of that, because of machine learning's input in our world, that it's dehumanizing a lot of work, and therefore we're seeking out more human connection like this, Mm. this audio connection through Podcast, So storytelling is becoming more important. So on the one hand, you've got this macro trend, which is storytelling is becoming more important because it's a very human skill and it differentiates us from machine. That's the only thing machines can't do well. And then the other part is, you know, really AI is about trying to understand people and how we think and trying to model it. And one of the most important skills we human beings have and how we influence other people. is storytelling. So if you want to understand intelligence, you have to understand how we impact, engage, lead, follow other people. And that is all a subset of storytelling. So they're very closely aligned, even though AI is kind of working up that, you know, that intellectual tree towards more complex forms of intelligence. That's where we need to go.
1: You've referenced quite a few areas which I would like to dive into. You mentioned about AI and consciousness. Hmm. So I just wanted to unpick that a bit. What was your insights into the link between AI and consciousness, and what are the, you could say, constructs behind that?
0: Consciousness is always used as an argument why machines can't be human. For example, mm-hmm. you can create some music and you can engage with that music as a listener. Let's say you're listening to Metallica or Led Zeppelin or whatever it may be, but you engage with not only the music, but the people, the people Mm -hmm. behind the music, whatever your favorite music is. And because of that, we feel that it has soul. It has a human involved in it and it has a consciousness behind it and that could apply to for example creating art it could apply to creating you know lunch for somebody in a restaurant the person who made it had consciousness they were thinking about that they were thinking about who they were and maybe putting ideas together that didn't exist and so we feel especially when we have these very human moments there is some kind of consciousness there and that's what separates us from machine However, what's been found is the more and more complex machines become, and if you look, for example, at AlphaGo, which was Google's um, Mm -hmm. AI-powered Go playing bot, which just Mm -hmm. crushed all world champions, it won 51 out of 52 games against all the grandmasters in the world. And apparently, actually, the 52nd game, it lost only because the internet connection dropped. It's not a joke. That's the only time the machine lost. (laughs) But the point is, is that even the grandmasters said that the moves and the gameplay of AlphaGo was so what they called divine that they thought it couldn't have been done by machine. It was playing at this level like it somehow knew it was playing these very strange opening moves which caught people off guard. And, you know, these grandmasters would play against it and they would think, what's going on? This is not a normal opening gambit on go. And then it would basically, then the sucker punch would play this series of moves and crush these grandmasters. And that's the point, is that it's just far more complex than previous machines. It appears to be conscious, right? Mm. So there is a, a school of thought, which I subscribe to, that consciousness is like... The hum of a fridge like you've got a fridge in the kitchen right and it keeps your food <clears throat> cool and fresh and it hums it makes a noise but it's not designed to do that that's just kind of a byproduct of the circuitry of the fridge right mm-hmm. and some people believe and i believe that consciousness is the same it's a byproduct it's nothing more than what psychologists call an epiphenomena, which is you know a byproduct it's not the reason it just happens to be the product of very complex calculations So I'm no believer in consciousness as a sort of a spiritual human exceptional quality.
1: Let's go down that route a bit about consciousness, because the whole purpose of consciousness or the background consciousness, especially when it comes to human, is the fact that you're thinking about thinking. It's metacognition. And in effect, if you take that construct of metacognition or the thinking about thinking aspect, all you have to do is create routines, algorithms, algorithms that take it into consideration for it to reconsider what it's doing. And in effect, that's what an algorithm does, especially if you take the Go example as as an example, where it was learning the moves, of Go as part of the learning process. And then it was doing iterations. And the reason why it was considered so pure and divine and everything else was because it was not basing its arguments or anything else based on experience and previous play and building up all this knowledge. It was using iterations at high speed. It wasn't judging based on good or bad. It was just saying, this can work, I will use this, which meant it was going outside of the constructs of what people were normally used to dealing with. So it was actually In effect, this comes into another interesting aspect, which is bias because people would bias themselves to certain moves or gameplays or structures because it makes them feel comfortable because that algorithm was running outside of basically the bias. It was just running through iterations. It could be creative. And that's where the creative aspect comes in, which is why people thought it was divine because it's so completely outside of their reference that it was like, whoa, how do you do that? But that only comes through the fact that it could iterate through thousands and iterations very, very quickly to be able to get to that point. Mm. So that is, that's a, you could say, interesting take on the whole scenario. I find the, the conscious argument, I think, is quite an interesting aspect. Of. The other angle on this whole discussion as well is that the fact of emotion what emotion plays in creativity, art, music, everything else, because that's what people seek. People seek the emotional connection when it comes to creativity and especially with engagement. And that comes out quite clearly when you take a look at the whole scenario of lockdown and what it's done to people is that connection is missing. So people are starved of feeling part of something. It's that sensory, etherical part of, being part of a you could say group of a, a tribe or friends and family, that lack of connection, that feedback is what people crave, which is what makes it so really difficult for people to deal with it. And why people are having mental issues is because they don't have that sensory feedback, the social engagement, the emotional aspect of it. But that's my theory on all the scheme of things.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I like the idea that, Really, the the metacognition is really just a, a function of complexity, more powerful computational lines of code effectively, more mm. ability to think, not really even thinking, just to process data at that level. So that that's really, I think there's a lot of feeling that human beings are somehow exceptional, that we are different. Well, I mean, we are different, but we aren't really qualitatively different. That's the point, isn't it? Mm -hmm. that we are feeling these emotions that you talk about. Again, they're not exceptional. They're really just more complex algorithms inside us. If you think about what these emotions really exist to do, for example, that ability to one that's often talked about is empathize, you know, like empathize with other people. Well, it has a very hard black and white case for evolutionary survival even in the brain the neurological structure of the brain we have a group of neurons called mirror neurons Mm. which fire when you and i are doing the same thing if we're sort of modeling each other body language or you're eating an ice cream and i'm eating an ice cream you know that mirror neurons firing and so that makes me feel empathic towards somebody now think about what that means in terms of how we acquire language why we connect with people if you see somebody being beaten up on the street or you see those videos when somebody's on a skateboard and they fall off the stairs and (laughs) you know and it looks pretty painful you feel that right or you know the spider crawling up somebody's shoulder on the movie you feel it then you know you get that sort of hair on your arm stand up feeling right that's a biological evolutionary function but it gives us these emotions And therefore, you think about these emotions, they exist for a purpose. And the purpose is there for us to survive and to procreate. That's what we're here to do. And what we do in the middle of that is really a bonus. That just kind of lengthens the game, if you like. So I think, you know, we need to understand all of this in terms of what the actual function of this all is. You know, emotion, personality, consciousness. They have a, a, you know, a very defined role in us as a species right they're not these sort of exceptional spiritual qualities that we have even spirituality again it's just more of a complex computational algorithm that we have
1: yeah i think there's a lot of really interesting discussions that can be had about where ai is going to go in the future and how it's going to change things the other thing that i've seen recently as i work in cybersecurity, security i deal with fraud i deal with cybersecurity investigations One of the areas which is quite concerning in certain aspects is the whole deepfake phenomenon. Mm. So for people who are not aware of what deepfake is, it's where videos are created. Let's say there's one popular one of Barack Obama, and they've more or less re-engineered his voice to say a bunch of phrases, which obviously are completely untrue. And there's various ones where people have had edits go out. The first actual software that was created was by Adobe. And they created, a, they did a, a really big display, I think it's was 2016, that one of the actors come up and the guy was doing text to speech edits mm. while the guy was sitting it. And he replayed his voice back and it was spot on perfect. It was so, so unnerving that they stopped the launch of the software because they thought there were too many risks associated by releasing the software because it could be abused so well. Mm. Push on a couple of years, a number of people have then taken this and they've developed their own libraries. That's where a lot of these translation services have come in with Google's Translate, text-to-speech translations. But now what they've done is they've tried to restrict it so you could only edit and modify your own voice and you can't do it to somebody else's voice to restrict the amount of crime that can be used and that can be abused. But what's happened is people have been able to engineer around that. And there's been a couple of cases where there was one CEO in the UK that got targeted by a text-to-speech process where they sent in or requested an invoice to be paid, and it was 250000 I think, pounds that the guy sent to a fraud to the bank account. Mm. And he said it was a German CEO, tonality was correct, accent was correct, everything else was correct. I had no idea that this was not a person. And that's quite concerning because it allows for quite a lot of manipulation to come in. And, you know, that's sometimes that's something that's really, really quite unnerving in certain aspects. So what are your takes on that? How do you think AI is going to potentially prevent any of that?
0: Hmm. Well, it's certainly making it easier, as you say. The UK CEO example is fascinating, isn't it? That these are Hmm. people you thought would have been very acute to the problem and aware of it, and it's always the case, isn't it? It's always those ones that are smart, that get caught out by these things. In terms of what it means to us, I would have thought that we've always had a rebalancing. We've always had a way of establishing trust with people. Mm -hmm. And for thousands of years, think of the handshake as the most obvious example that's been around since Roman times, if not before. You know, it was the act of the open hand to show that you weren't armed. Mm -hmm. Even that word, upper hand, came from that idea when two soldiers would meet and they would shake hands and whoever had the upper hand had the advantage. So handshakes are really those tokens that we use to measure trust between, authenticate between people, right? In just the same way Mm -hmm. that we do that in the world of security, we have tokens Mm -hmm. to authenticate our interactions, right? And we've been doing that as human beings for thousands of years. So the point is, is now that the landscape has changed, we will need to find other ways to authenticate our interactions with each other. You know, what are the emotional handshakes that even the physical handshake is going away as an option. Now it's the fist bump if you have any physical contact now in business. very People are very cautious about shaking hands because of what's happened in the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. So what will happen is people will place increasing emphasis on the very non-fakeable aspects of interaction. So that's why you're seeing, on the one hand, AI pushing into and co-opting much of our interaction in the nefarious ways, like you are talking about, and the less, the more innocuous ways, I should say, like, for example, the the gaming of algorithms on social media, for example. Mm -hmm. So what that's going to do is kind of force us to find better ways of authenticating as human to human. And one of those is that we'll push into and place an increasing premium on non-fakeable communication. And yes, we can fake voice very easily now, but it's still within that narrow band of transaction Mm. that there's no way that a bot could sit and have this conversation now. There's no way that it could do it at that kind of level of complexity within what we know. And almost it wouldn't have that vulnerability that a machine is designed not to have to make mistakes, right? which is what you pick up on, you know, the stammers and the mistakes and that sort of humanness. Mm. So and we will place an increasing premium on that. And that's why all around us in society now, we're talking about authenticity. It's everywhere. It's because of machine learning. It's because of AI. We're talking about what is the CEO's views on climate change because of AI, because of machine learning, because we want to know who are the human beings of these brands and these organizations. So that is the manifestation, if you like, of all of that, that yes ai may help in identifying who the crooks are and these and give us more tools but there will be a very human element that we'll increasingly value and that's going to be interesting those are the emotional handshakes if you like and that's why we're seeing a boom in podcasting because of that
1: this ties into i think one of your key areas which is basically storytelling so do you think that the reason why storytelling works so well is because it ties a lot of these concepts together and it provides a way of, the way I see it as context? Hmm. Because storytelling provides context for any person. I mean, if you had to take any story, fable, nursery rhyme, anything of that nature, there's a story built into it. And it's got a lot of subtle context to it. It's got a lot of additional information that's wrapped up in the story, which allows people to experience it as if they know it. So what's your reason for really going into the story side of things and the ability to tell a story for authenticity in this regard?
0: Hmm. Yeah, storytelling is what we as human beings do really well and it's actually what differentiates us from every other animal. We're the only storytelling animal. And if you think about why we tell stories, well, if you trace it back evolutionarily, that there was a point in our history as a species where we needed to evolve faster than the hardware. So, mm. you know, animals, dogs, will inherit behaviors from their parents, right? And their parents, 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 and so on. And to some extent in, in human beings that exist as well, reflexes and so on. But that iteration, that small generation by generation improvement is slow. Yes, you can go from a single cell amoeba to a wonderful human being in millions and millions of years. But if you wanted to evolve faster, if you wanted, for example, as a species to move from cold climates to warm climates, you couldn't rely on your biological evolution. So we needed a software. And that's where storytelling came in. Storytelling is like the cloud of our learning. We put all our information into the cloud, away from our physical nature. And so I can hand it down to my kids and my kids' kids' kids. If I make a tool, I don't have to wait till the next generation randomly make that tool again. I can pass that knowledge down and I can paint on a cave wall the movement of animals and teach people where to find Watering holes or the buffalo, and so on. And that's what we've been doing. And that's why we decoupled from our evolutionary hard frame, if you like, with storytelling. And so, therefore, we as a species that have become very hardwired and receptive to storytelling because other species can't do it. And it's enabled us to rapidly accelerate our progress over the last 100,000 years as storytelling animals and therefore that's a unique quality of humans and it's what we do and it really it's what differentiates us from machines as well because ultimately the story that we tell is a function of the storyteller as well think about art for example how important the artist's story is to that art you've seen those videos where they give like a paintbrush to a monkey or an elephant and it paints something like a jackson pollock it's not worth a jackson pollock right because that monkey and that elephant didn't have the story of a Jackson Pollock, right, of him. And therefore, Mm -hmm. that creates the value. You talk about context. Everything is created. The value is created through context, the frame, literally, of everything that we understand in the world.
1: In essence, culture and cultural Mm -hmm. development is also part of this whole story. Because if you take a look at each nation, and you've got tribes, you've got all of the different areas of a country, let's say for India... US, UK, you've got smaller forms of culture within the national sphere. So each one have got their own story, their language, their context, their frame, how they develop and how they pass on their knowledge. So culture is another way of Hmm. telling stories and passing on knowledge. And that's a way that allowed people to become a lot more successful and survive and prove survival is because the culture carries the stories and encapsulates a lot of the information to procreate, spread the news and the message and, you know, the ideas and the concepts. So that's, uh, that's another, I think, take on storytelling for me. Absolutely. Because there's a lot of correlation between
0: the two. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Culture is stories. It's actually nothing more because where where is the tangible aspect of culture that exists? It doesn't exist. It only exists in our conversations, right? And it's constantly mm-hmm. evolving. Look, for example, now about all the fuss made in the UK about statues of Cecil Rhodes. Mm-hmm. For example, I mean, you know, you know that part of the world, you know what went on down there as well. And you know how those stories were told in different ways. You know, the schoolboy stories of the Brits going to Africa. And you know how it was. It was told in a way. But that was our culture. And look at how it's being redefined. And in years to come, they'll think differently of Cecil Rhodes and what he did. Maybe it'll be less heroic. Maybe people will be more reflective about it. But that's the point. It evolves and it changes. It isn't tangible. It's exactly through the stories that we tell each other and how people, you know, some people gain control of that narrative and they change it and they rewrite history. And in George Orwell style, they rewrite reality. And therefore, culture is stories, whether it's in companies or countries, right?
1: So what makes a good story then?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. We all know a good story when we hear it, don't we? It's almost like, yeah, that kind of feels right. You you look at the work of, I don't know if you know, Joseph Campbell. He's a a writer who wrote these, he wrote two pieces of work, which are really interesting. People are, listeners are interested in storytelling. He wrote The Hero's Journey and The Hero with a a Thousand Faces. You're probably familiar with The Hero's Journey. Hmm. And that's a classic. And it basically lays out that stories for thousands of years have pretty much adopted these set patterns A Mm -hmm. classic example is the scene in the movie where they leave the hometown and they go on the adventure they have to cross there's actually a a, a scene in the movie or the book it's called the crossing the departure and in lord of the rings he crosses they cross the river and i don't know what it is in star wars and harry potter has it going on the train and then avengers Mm -hmm. has it and so these stories have been told for thousands of years in these very familiar narratives and if you look at Avengers as an example, Endgame made $3 billion in the box office. And I saw it twice. I've got a 15-year-old kid and uh, <laughs> he went four times with his mates. I was like, twice is enough. I mean, I've seen it before. I've seen, this is, this is Lord of the Rings. This is Star Wars. This is every myth ever been told. And that was the yeah. point. That was the realization that actually a good story, doesn't have to be fantastical. doesn't have to be new. In fact, the best stories are ones we've already heard because when you tell that story, it just goes straight to the subconscious. Oh, yeah, mm. I know the story. I know this is the hero. This is the bad guy. That's the magical object. This is the scene where he gets rejected. This is the scene where he has to pass through. This is the scene where da 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 and he comes home. And when it fits that narrative framework, then we feel that this story is a good story. You know, when it fits and when it doesn't fit, "Mm, I'm not sure about this story. So it's all about using narratives that already exist. And that's why I say if people want to become a really good storyteller, study stories because they all pretty much look the same.
1: Yeah. The difficult thing about stories is making sure you tie the unknown with some of the known aspects. And the blog post that you wrote about how Churchill was very good at connecting the stories mm. together. I found that really interesting because he was able to encapsulate this whole aspect of the known with the unknown. He is able to convey the emotional aspects of the story and how it connects to people. I think that's the value of probably a really good story. It's got to resonate with people in a mm. way. And you've got to find a way of connecting to people in a way that makes them feel engaged. Because that's the whole purpose of a story is to engage somebody. You can have a really terrible story, but it's engaging. The hmm. People don't really mind about the story because it gives them escape. It gives them things to think about. And there's, sometimes there's a lot of subtle lessons that can be inferred into a story if it's done in the right way. And that's why you've got some stories that endure for thousands of years mm. and are carried in the conscience. And doesn't matter where you go, people resonate with that story because it's something that's almost visceral. They connect with it on an emotional level, which again comes back to emotions. Because stories are about evoking emotions, it's about imagery, it's about sensory perception, it's about that, you know, those things that make people feel unique and makes them feel engaged in the world and also makes them feel like they're experiencing something, because that's what you want to do. With a good story, it, it evokes emotions, it evokes senses, it makes you feel, you know, alive, it gives you hope, or triggers all of these emotions and make people feel alive in every given day.
0: Mm. Great storytellers know that, right? Like Churchill you mentioned, I, I, somebody wrote about Churchill, that he, his gift was he put the English language to war, something like that, I paraphrase it, that... Mm-hmm. You know, he was a great orator, but on the other side, so was Hitler. You know, these were great orators. Yeah. They knew these, even Steve Jobs or great leaders, John F. Kennedy, people who have really moved people in both good and evil. I mean, not don't believe in good and evil, but good and bad ways. Mm -hmm. that they know humans, especially large groups of humans, very responsive at the subconscious level to myth, to avatars. You know, we we are very fearful. You talk about the unknown. We're very fearful of the unknown. And therefore, Donald Trump was very good at playing on that. You know, he knew what people were scared of, and he knew how to trigger that. Now, that makes him a great storyteller. Not saying that's a good thing, but that's the reality, that it shows, you talk about the engaging part, that what people engage with is that myth that these pathways that have been around for thousands of years in culture
1: yeah there's something else that you mentioned which i thought was really interesting is short form stories Mm. and the fact that how you can encapsulate a lot of information in a short form story so what's your take on a short form story
0: yeah a lot of people think storytelling is once upon a time but sometimes the most powerful stories are short form meaning a word or you know a sentence steve jobs is most classic examples when he launched the ipod he didn't call it the world's best mp3 player and proceed you know with a presentation he's just said it's a tool for the heart right <laughs> the tool for the heart is beautiful that's a short form story flattening the curve is a short form story even your t-shirt spartan beast it's a short form yeah it tells me about you you know here's a guy who likes doing spartan races spartan itself is a story isn't it it's a short form mm-hmm. when you think of spartan you think of 300 and yeah. Those crazy guys who, from the age of seven, went to training camps to fight war, sort of stoic mentality, all that short form. It's a shortcut that helps us understand, a label that helps us understand very complex ideas.
1: The other thing about short form or any kind of story is, is that metaphors are built into them. Hmm. And that's something which I think is very unique to people because it encapsulates a lot of information within a metaphor that allows it to travel. Mm. That's why metaphors are used heavily in stories because it allows for information to be almost bundled into the whole story. And it provides context, it provides pre-framing, it allows for all of these thinking concepts to be carried across. And it gets all of those subtleties built into it, which I think is a really unique skill and ability to have that is to be able to use metaphors in a way that makes storytelling very engaging. And I think it's gonna be a sad day when it gets to a point where somebody could, you say, write an algorithm that can use metaphors in conveying information hmm. it's not done it's not impossible and it's not improbable whether it's unlikely i don't know but i think the rate that knowledge development is going it's it could be something that, that could be looked into but again if you actually understand what the function of a metaphor is hmm. it's very possible to conceptualize it.
0: well they're extremely powerful without a doubt hmm. like leaders know this in storytelling use use of metaphors and great marketers CEOs anybody that wants to influence people uses metaphors go back to the Bible I'm not religious but you know I was brought up like most kids to read this stuff the fishes of men Jesus would tell the disciples is it to go and fish for men because they were fishermen and that's a metaphor right that was like using what people understand and connecting it to the unknown that's what metaphors and stories do and really what storytellers do is they connect known experience to the unknown future and therefore that's why we follow them because they help us make sense of the future and they help us make sense of the unknown and that's why we say flattening the curve helps us make sense of the unknown it gives it familiarity we don't like the unknown that's why they're extremely powerful because you can connect a to b and your choice of connection can have completely different outcomes right you can connect somebody to this unknown person to any experience that somebody's had for good and bad you know, you think about how that plays in the context of prejudice, how the context of in positive outcomes as well. So that's the power of metaphors. And they're very, very subtle. Think, for example, the most, if people want to understand what a metaphor is, think of traffic lights, right? Mm-hmm. Red, amber, green. That's pretty universal. Like your point about they carry globally. I don't know any country that doesn't have that system. So that- Yeah. Let's say 7 billion people in the world are familiar with traffic lights. That's a metaphor, right? Right. And interestingly, when they launched traffic lights, they based it on railway lights, train lights. They had the same system on train tracks. So when they introduced it, they had to have a system that worked for millions of people. They couldn't have people like, oh, what's these lights on the road? Like, bam, crash, too late. They needed quick decisions. And so the traffic light was effectively a metaphor for what came before it it was using the familiar connecting it to the unknown and that's what good storytellers know how to do is how do you get people to behave in a certain way using what they know already
1: if you look into the whole traffic light example because it's a very good one if you think about it the lights that they use the fact that they got red amber green Mm. are really quite interesting because people inherently know red is bad stop red is warning Yeah. So initially, it's very quickly to identify or associate that was a behavior. But the other thing that it does, it programs behavior in people. Hmm. Because people invariably know that red is a danger signal because it either means something's ripe and healthy and it's used as a sign of virility. But most of the time, it's used as a warning that something's gone wrong or that something is dangerous. Amber tends to be that in-between state where it's like, okay, not quite dangerous, but you need to be aware of it. I think green obviously signifies health, virility, mm. growth, and being able to grow and develop. So it's, there's a lot of subtle concepts that are all built into just the symbolism of using those three colors as well. Absolutely. So it's,
0: That's a good point. They didn't use words, did they? Or numbers? No. Interestingly, they could have done. They could have had stop, right? And even the stop signs are right as well, right? so yeah. that's what we actually see yeah i hadn't thought about it in the context of colors but that makes complete sense that's like the the meta metaphor if you like it to <laughs> another level but yeah you know you-
1: again, that that again comes down to i think when they first looked at lights what made them look at it and think i'll use these three colors mm. where was that connection coming from now that would be an interesting story
0: mm. and how that evolved right so yeah. it, it must have started just with the red light at the beginning. though so when that's And that must have just been like the lamp that they held up, you know, the gas light or the candle. So it must have been something like that. That's where it came from originally. Interestingly, in Japan, they still call the green light blue. Strange. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, the, the original traffic lights, they had a blue light for green. But even like, you can speak to Japanese people when they say like red, amber, green, they say if you're driving and they say oh the, the the light is green as you would say in English or any other language in Japanese even though it's green they'll say the light is blue <laughs> so it's funny how those concepts stick even though it's there right in front of you right
1: is there some kind of cultural significance with blue being associated with going would
0: I don't know something? I don't know it's just a, it's just a strange Galapagos phenomenon I guess right <laughs> it comes from living on an island <laughs> yeah I don't know the whole that's story a-
1: That's a cultural carryover, which Mm. I think is really interesting. And that's, again, makes for an interesting story because that changes your context. Because now the novelty aspect makes it unusual Mm. because now you're more concerned about why is blue being used? You're not even talking about the story anymore, not talking about traffic lights. It's like, why blue?
0: Mm.
1: What makes blue so significant? And that's, I think, what story does is that it triggers conversations, it triggers interest. Absolutely. And you've got to have that shift from the known to something which is completely unusual that makes you think, like, how does that happen? Mm. And that's where I think a story has got a lot of real value to it is that it shifts that whole perspective because it changes the context just a subtle amount that you look at it and think, wow, that's... And suddenly you start becoming really engaged with and interested. Now we can almost probably spend half an hour talking just about the fact that blue has been used in Japan for traffic lights <laughs> or a reference to traffic lights.
0: It's the rabbit hole. But the, yeah. the art does that, doesn't it? Like art yeah. doesn't have any real physical value at all but i'm sure if you collect art most people do it because they enjoy it but because it creates stories you show it to a friend and you say oh this is the new painting that i have or this photo and it starts a conversation right even though you might be looking at a square or some impression that's the point it creates conversation and that creates connection
1: yeah a really good example of somebody that generates stories is banksy
0: yeah
1: and for people not familiar with Banksy, Banksy is a street artist in the UK. And what makes him unique is nobody really knows who he is. Nobody's been able to publicly identify him. Mm. And he's got a lot of visibility because he creates story with his street art. And people that paint his street art or that have his street art or bought his street art pay thousands if not millions for him because he creates a whole story with it. But he's mm. incredibly good about looking and changing the context of the stories. You know, the child was with a balloon, the rat, there's a very popular well-known one with rats, one that he did during lockdown was a bunch of rats in a toilet. He creates a whole story within yeah. that frame. I think that's the important aspect is about making sure you've got a frame for the story and keeping it within that frame, because otherwise you lose your audience, you lose the uniqueness or the whole engagement aspect of it.
0: Well, think about also how important he is to that story. Now, if you yeah. took Banksy, for example, if you saw a picture of a rat on a wall on some random building in your town, the first thing people would want to know, is it a Banksy? Now yeah. the fact that it's a Banksy doesn't actually change the, the art itself. Not at all. It's done. But if it's a Banksy, if it's confirmed as often what follows in the media, if it's confirmed as a Banksy, then suddenly it becomes A story suddenly it becomes valuable you know that the Mm. local council come out and put the glass in front of it preserve it even though (laughs) it's otherwise normally it would be graffiti right that's the irony it completely redefines the context by the storyteller and that's really important because it's just like going back to the music is you don't actually care so much about the sound you care about who's creating the sound And that's what the engagement part is, is that we engage with the storyteller, the creator of this art, of this music, of these books. That's what's really important. So, you know, think about value in that context.
1: I think we can have another in-depth conversation about value and storytelling because, again, there's another rabbit hole that can go down there. Yeah. But the other interesting connection with AI and thinking and brain processing information, you get a lot of metacognition that's built into a story. Mm. And it allows for all of the subtle information to be carried along. And the interesting thing is about any story, as you've mentioned it before, each person can interpret the story differently. That's what makes, I think, stories incredibly valuable. Because mm. you can have the same book that's read by the same person across 10 years, they can interpret that story differently because of personal experience hmm. and because of how they've lived their life. Give that same book to somebody else, they'll either see no value in it or they'll see a completely different interpretation. Yeah. But the mainstay of the story can carry across, but the interpretation is completely different, which is an interesting concept.
0: You see that a lot of music, which, don't you? That when, yeah. when the musician is quizzed about what the lyrics mean, the, the smarter ones know that actually there is no answer to that it's up to you to decide in fact the best songs are a little bit vague aren't they mm. that they leave a lot to interpretation you listen to the Beatles for example it's very vague a lot of it especially the ones that Lennon wrote and when quizzed about it they would often say to some effect that's up to you to decide because if they told you this is exactly what it means same with art if you tell you this is exactly what it means Where does it leave space for you to tell your story with this art, with this music? And so people have their own interpretations. And I think that's what a clever storyteller does leave that space.
1: Yeah, I think there's a it's a lot of really interesting questions and perspectives that can come out from from all of this. So Graham, tell us what's next on your plate. What's what's your next kind of big thing that you're going to be doing? Apart from your agency that you're working Mm. on. Do you have any your books or anything else that you're working on. I've just done an interview with you on your Excel live stream, which was good fun. What else have you got yourself involved in?
0: Well, I'm a big fan of audio, as you know, as you are as well, Lance. So, yeah, I want to take a snapshot of where we are in the world of audio. So I'm writing a book called The Age of Audio, which is really about the golden age of audio. Ironically, it's the second golden age of audio because the 1920s was said to be the first age of audio. Yeah. You know, and interestingly, that followed the the age of radio, the golden age of radio, followed the automation, followed the pandemic that hit in 1918. And where are we today? A world of automation and pandemics. So we're seeking this need to connect again through audio. So I want to document that. I want to go beyond simply this is a podcast and this is what podcasts do. I want to really understand why is there an explosion in social audio? Why is Spotify one of the hottest ticket items out there? Why is Facebook investing in audio? Why Clubhouse? Why LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera? And really understand that. What is that in our human soul that makes us really connect with audio? And that's a book I'm writing at the moment. And it's it's an expert interview series, people who are shaping the world of audio in their own ways. And Mm -hmm. I would like to document our time and so people can look back on it and say oh yeah that's when it all happened
1: sounds fantastic when's that plan to come out
0: ask me again in three months (laughs) (laughs) book writing i mean yeah i have published books before so i know that it tends to be an exponential curve as you get closer to launch it gets further away so let's just say soon so if somebody's listening to this in in a couple of years time it still might be soon you see so
1: (laughs) getting the story
0: yeah endless
1: (laughs) Yeah, great I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for being on the interview. It was a fantastic discussion.
0: Yeah, man, and yeah. hopefully, is loved it.
1: Some interesting views.
0: Yeah, it's good that have
1: come out of it. And uh, obviously, for people who are listening to this, make sure you listen to your podcast and also connect with Graham if they want to interview you. And on your website is GrahamBrown.com. Graham D. Brown. Your,
0: D. Graham D. Brown. Sorry. Yeah. Graeme D.
1: Brown. Yeah, the other one okay. is,
0: a, is a wallpaper website. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, Graeme D. Brown. So I'll put all of that in the show notes and also how people can get a hold of you. But thanks a lot for uh, being on the show.
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I love the questions as well.
1: Yeah, have a good day.
0: When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.